Well, good morning. I'm Joe. If I haven't had the privilege of meeting you yet, I serve as the lead pastor here at New Freedom Church and uh, so privileged and honored that you're here with us today. One of the things that we like to do around here is stay connected. And we know that uh, God has placed each individual person in the body for a purpose and a function. And so that is how that uh, one way we stay connected. Uh, this morning, I have uh, a couple of things that I want to share with you before we get into the message. Uh, the, the topic we're going to be discussing is important, but maybe perhaps nothing is more important than what's going to be taking place here in just a couple weeks. On March the 15th, we are going to be having a baptism Sunday. Somebody say amen. That's good. Amen. So if you haven't been baptized, you should be baptized. You need to be baptized. If you know someone who's just been waiting and they're not really sure, this is going to be the opportunity for them. We're going to do it live right here in our 1030 service. Actually, right behind me, these uh, two panels come out. We have a baptism pool here, and we're going to celebrate together around the waters of baptism. So if you haven't done that, please sign up at the information desk. That's also the place where you get all the other uh, items that we've talked about thus far in the service. And so uh, this morning, uh, I want to bring to you a message called Turn on a Dime. Turn on a Dime. Uh, it is not part of the series we were just in. We start a new series next week. But this week is a very special message. And it has to do, if you haven't figured this out, it has to do with money. Now, there are three topics that every pastor loves to talk about. They love to talk about money, sex, and politics said no pastor ever. I mean, like, like these are the toughest topics to talk about, but yet they're so vital and they're so important. And I know that uh, we will be addressing all three of those topics here this year. This is an election year. And so uh, many people are very curious about how to engage uh, in a time where it seems so divisive. And it just seems like people are are taking sides and picking and choosing winners. And so uh, we want to address that and, and, and kind of head that off as well. But this morning, we're going to talk about how that we use the resources that God has given us. Now, I realize that uh, the rest of the six days of the week, other than Sunday, many of us do not necessarily engage in conversations about the Bible. Unless you work at church or maybe you're part of a study, you probably don't talk every single day about the Bible. It's just maybe not at the top of your mind. But what I'm going to talk about today is something every single one of us address or talk about or deal with every single day of the week. I don't care if it's just a matter of how your kids are going to get lunch money and who's going to pick them up and where you're putting the gas in your car. We all talk about money. It is central to our lives. Uh, the great uh, motivational speaker, Zig Ziglar, he said this, money is not everything, but it's right up there with oxygen. <laughs> it's right near the top. And so we want to talk this morning about turn on a dime. Now, for those of you that came this morning, and this is your first time visiting, and you said, you know, the last couple of times I visited a church, they talk about money. I get that every time that we talk about money. I have something for you. If you just hang on, I have something for you as well, because I have some spiritual applications that really have nothing to do with money and in context of their application, but they have everything to do with our stewardship of how we use what God has given to us. So if you hang in there with me. Also, even though I'm going to address the topic of tithing this morning, what I do want to share with you, if you hang in there with me to the end, I'm going to show you how that under grace in the New Testament, you don't have to tithe, okay? Now, that just made somebody mad. I mean, somebody out there, they're already getting their letters. They're like, Pastor, I've been doing this for 30 years. Under grace, you don't have to tithe. So just, you now somebody else has got a relief. They're like, oh, good, okay. But hang in there with me to the end, and you'll see a little bit clearer 
what I'm talking about. I am going to ask the ushers, the, some of those that are going to serve, I'm going to ask them to uh, do something, and that is everyone is going to receive a gift today from the church. We are going to do a reverse offering. How many ever passed the plate when you were a kid? Like, we passed the plate. We're going to pass the plate, and you're going to take some money this morning. Come on, come on, guys, help me out. Everybody, we're going to do a reverse offering. So I want you to reach into that offering bucket and just take one. Everybody is going to get and receive a dime this morning. Pretty good illustration for turn on a dime is a dime. This is called a reverse offering. Have, have you ever seen a reverse offering in church? I mean, I've seen people make change in the plate before, but, but, but I don't think I've ever seen a reverse offering. So take your time there and just everybody grab a dime. Hey, you are pretty good at this. Now, if you've received your dime, just hold it up. I want to see who, who all has their dime. All right. We're almost to the back. Everybody's going to get a dime. Now, this is yours to fidget with, to play with to turn over and over and over again in your hand this entire message. I want you to play with this dime the entire time, okay? This is for you to illustrate what God is going to speak to us this morning in the power of 10. So just about everybody, sir, let me, let me get started. 10 is the highest number that we can count. 10 is the highest number we can humanly possibly count. And by the power of 10, we can count to billions and billions and beyond. When you think about it, 11, which would be higher than 10, right? Logically, 11 is higher than 10. 11 is really just one on a whole new level of 10s. And so the power of 10 is the highest number that we can count. And we see this occur again and again throughout God's word. The number 10 shows up to illuminate us and to teach us some spiritual principles, even though it does apply in a sense to our money. We're going to talk about that this morning. 10 applies to so many other things. The power of 10 is the power of completeness. When you look at 10 through biblical numerics, or what the numbers in the Bible really mean, you will find time and again that 10 represents a wholeness or a completeness. And so it's saying that something is fulfilled as a completion when we get to the number of 10. I just wanted to run through a couple of slides really quick. You can write these down. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them, but I want to show you the significance of 10 in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. First in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis chapter 1, this is the great creation narrative. We see that there are the words, God said, God said, let there be light. God said, let there be a division of the firmament and the heavens. God said, God said 10 times in chapter 1. I think that's significant, that when God spoke, life became. Something happened, something activated when God spoke. It didn't happen 8 times. It didn't happen 9 times. It happened 10 times. There are 10 generations recorded between the creation and the flood of Noah where God basically said, hey, we need to start over. Uh, something has gone awry here. We're going to start this again. There are 10 plagues that are mentioned in the deliverance from Egypt into the wilderness, which was to be eventually the promised land. 10 plagues were pronounced. And then once they got into Mount Sinai, there were 10 commandments given by Mo to Moses by God for the people. So 10 time and again. 
When you get into the New Testament, we see that there are 10 I am statements of Jesus. Jesus not only revealed who he was uh, going to be in their deliverance or what he had come to do, but really who God was through these I am statements. And we have 10 of these statements throughout the New Testament. If you get into the parables of Jesus, Jesus taught parables which were like uh, lesson stories in a capsule. A, a parable is a timed-released capsule where a story would go down, it would be told, and later on the people would start to realize the meaning of it. Maybe not immediately when they heard it, but later on the meaning would start to, to colorize their life and it would start to make sense to them. And so in the parables of Jesus, get this, we have, there's one parable with ten virgins, there's another with ten lepers, there's another with ten talents, which was like a monetary exchange that people were given and entrusted with. And then there were ten minas, or that's actually wages. Three months to be exact. Three months wages were given to ten different people, and they were then given a report to say how that they were able to spend those. So ten occurs not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament time and time again. And so I went in search of where we find 10 and the significance of this number and what does it mean in the context of applying to our lives spiritually and practically. Well, it should come as no surprise that my favorite Bible character is Joseph. I know that's a shocker. It's tough to believe. But my favorite Bible character is Joseph. I, I put a, a picture of Joseph here and, and we know Joseph because he had a coat of what? Joseph had a coat of many colors. It was given to him by his father because it shouldn't happen this way in families, but every now and then it happens that one of the children or another end up being the favored child. Joseph was the favorite. I mean, he was the one. Joseph was so favored that his, his father had made this coat for him, and then he was also a dreamer. So about 17 years old, Joseph receives this coat, and he goes to sleep one night, and his brothers are grumbling, and they're complaining amongst themselves. Oh, he's dad's favorite. He gets everything. Look at him. He thinks he's something. He's got this coat. And he goes out the next day, and he does something you should never, ever do to siblings, and that is he revealed to them that he had a vision. He had a dream. He said, hey, I had this dream, and these sheaths were bowing down to worship me. And these sheaths in the dream were his brothers. It was actually his father, too. And he, he said to them that, that there would come this time that God had revealed that he was going to be a great ruler, that he was going to have power over them. Well, if you already are having a little bit of issue with the favoritism in your family, and your favored sibling comes to tell you that someday you're going to worship him, well, all of a sudden, that sibling rivalry, it gets really heated, doesn't it? Well, that's what happened. And now, Joseph actually had 11 brothers, but any good preacher's got to find 10 somewhere in the story, right? So I found 10 in this story. When Joseph gave this dream, his brothers waited until father wasn't looking. They concocted a plan that they were going to eliminate this threat to their inheritance. They were going to get rid of this favored son. And the way they were going to do it is they were going to sell him into slavery. They put him down in a pit. You know the story, right? They put him down in a pit. These gypsies come by. They sell him to the gypsies. And he goes off into a foreign land. At the time that he was sold, get this, 10 brothers concluded to sell him. The 11th brother, Benjamin, his younger brother, was back at home. Some scholars don't even believe he was born yet, but I think he probably was born, but he was really young. So 10 of his brothers concluded together that they would sell him into slavery. Do you know what they really did? These 10, the power of 10, all in unity, sold him into slavery, so they thought, but they actually sowed him into his destiny. 
Joseph was the divine portion by God for his family because as the story unfolds later on, you can read this in the book of Genesis. There's like 14 chapters just on this one story, this one man, Joseph, in the book of Genesis. He actually does become uh, second in charge of Egypt at one time. And all of his brothers do come and they do worship him. They bow down basically to pay homage to him because he was God's divine portion for his family to provide not only their necessary needs, not only food and the famine for them, but also for the entire nation of Egypt. God had given him this dream. God had called him with a purpose. And he was God's divine portion. Everybody say that with me, divine portion. He was God's divine portion for his family for a time of deliverance. Now, it took a season. It took many years to develop this, but he was God's divine portion. There's another uh, story in the scriptures, and I'll quickly go through this one, that there are uh, in the, in the uh, wilderness 12 spies to go out and look at the promised land. Here's the story. The great deliverance happened out of Egypt of God's people. They go into the wilderness, and they're only about three-day journey over to the promised land, but they are stuck in this wilderness debating on what to do, and they have to make a decision, so they decide to send out 12 spies to go check out the land. Well, the report comes back from two of them that, hey, this land is good. It's bountiful. We are more than able. God has given us this land. Let's go and possess this land. Two of them had a positive report. So how many does that leave left? You guys are good at math. Ten had a negative report. They said, no, we can't go there. There's giants in the land. They're bigger than us. They'll kill us. We can't do this. Now, usually we say that there is safety in a multitude of numbers. But in this case, ten people's negative report made a complete compelling case to the entire generation to stay in the wilderness and for more than 40 years just because 10 people said we can't go an entire nation died in a wilderness there is power in the number 10 10 brothers sold their family into a place of poverty and 10 voices kept an entire nation in egyptian uh, from egyptian bondage in a wilderness in a place of wandering around the same mountain and so there's great power in 10. That dime in your hand may not look like much, but there is power in the number 10. So let's look and find where does this number 10 first crop up, first arise in Scripture. Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 20. It says this. Then Melchizedek. Now how would you like to have that name? Melchizedek. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine... And he was the priest of the Most High God. So look at who he is. He is the priest of the Most High God. This is a pre-incarnate example of Jesus Christ showing up in the Old Testament. For you, those of you Bible scholars, that's what Melchizedek was. He was the king of the Most High. And he blessed him, saying, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe. Everybody say tithe. He gave him a tithe of all. So I've highlighted tithe there in that verse. I want them to keep that up for just a minute because this is the very first place that we find in Scripture the word tithe, and tithe means ten. Somebody say that with me. Tithe means ten. It is a tenth, it is a tenth of the portion. And so the backdrop of this story, this is the first time we see the word tithe, and I want you to notice the words that are before it. It says, and he, that's Abram, who we're talking about in the story, gave him, who is Melchizedek, that is God, that is a representative of deity, 
a tithe of all. Of all of what? What did he give him a tithe of? Well, Abram here in the story, the backdrop is that his nephew Lot had relocated. He had gone to another land. He had settled in with that land. He had intermixed with their culture. He never should have done it. He got in trouble, and he needed rescuing. And so Abram decided, I'm going to go take care of my nephew here. But Abram was so blessed by God. He was so strong in number and multitude. He was so uh, anointed by God to do certain things that when he went to go rescue Lot, not only did he rescue Lot, he also conquered five kings in the area. And in these days, when you would conquer another area's kingdom, you would take all of the spoil. You would take all of their their their, their uh, plunder, everything that they had of material wealth and gain, you would get it yourself. And so on the way back from rescuing his nephew, he encounters this deity. He encounters Melchizedek. And notice the Bible says, and he gave him a tithe of all. It doesn't say he paid him. It doesn't say that he owed him. It doesn't say that he was compelled or asked to do it. There was something on the inside that he recognized, I am in the presence of deity. I am in the presence of greatness. And I have got this great bounty that I have just looted. And now, because God has given it to me, I am compelled to offer it, to give it to God. And he gave him ten of everything that he had conquered. This is the first time we see this word used, and it is 500 years before the law was instituted. Now, I'm going to get into it in just a second, but many times when I bring a topic like this, people say, well, pastor, that's old law. Tithing is under the old covenant. That's old law. That, that is completely true. And that's why in a minute I'm going to tell you, you don't have to tithe as a New Testament believer. But hang on, I'm not done with that phrase yet. We're going to finish that phrase. But this shows us that 500 years before the law was even given, that here Abram, a man whose heart was inclined to God, gave willingly, offered a tithe to God. So I mentioned just a minute ago that Joseph was the divine portion for his family. Somebody say divine portion. Let's see where divine portion comes from, but let me define it for you first. Divine portion is this. This is my definition. This isn't in the Bible. This is my definition. That which is set apart as special to God or designated as an offering to him. Again, it's nothing that you owe. It's nothing you're compelled to give. You're not arm-twisted to do it. It's something that is set apart special to God. And here's where I believe we find the first example of divine portion. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. This is Adam and Eve in the garden right after creation. And here are the instructions that God gave them. You ready? Here it says, Then the Lord God took the man... And put him in a garden, the Garden of Eden, to tend it and to keep it. This is his first profession. This is the first uh, uh, use of his talent, of his skills. God put man in this garden. This is what God gave them. And the Lord God said to man, saying, commanded man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. How many trees can they eat of? Every tree. God said, you see this? Every tree you may freely eat, but, verse 17, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So what was the command of God? You can eat of every tree of the garden but one. There's only one. It's the tree. It's not a species of tree. It's not a whole bunch of them. In other words, God's saying anything that you see, it's yours. Except for this one thing. And that was the divine 
portion, that one divine portion that God said, I am going to give you a prohibition against this. I prohibit you from eating of this tree because I know better than you know, and in the day that you eat it, you will surely die. Now, notice the difference between a prohibition and a prevention. God did not prevent them from eating from the tree because we know that they did eat of the tree. Eventually, they ate of that tree. So it was possible for them to violate the divine portion. It was possible for them to reach in and take of it. It's just that God said, don't do it. Now, listen to me when I say this. When God says no, what he is saying is, don't hurt yourself. When God says to us, don't do something, it's not because he's a killjoy. It's not because he wants to take all of our fun away. It's not because he doesn't want us to enjoy life. Rather, it's the opposite. It's because he wants abundant life for us. And he tells us, you have a, a choice before you today. Choose life that you might live. And so this divine portion was given with a prohibition. Don't do this, but not with a prevention. Let me, let me illustrate the difference here. If I tell you that during this service, I don't want anybody going out that door unless there's an emergency. I'm giving a prohibition. Don't go out that door. But any of you at any moment could stand up and you could walk right out that door. There's a crash bar there. It's not locked from the inside. You can go out that door. You are not prevented from going out that door. I can't stop you. However, if I would back up a truck on the other side of that overhang right there, I would prevent you from being able to go out there. You can push that crash bar you want. You are not pushing a truck out of the way of that door. But right now, it's just a prohibition. And here's how God applies this in our lives, is that he issues prohibitions on, on our lives. And basically what he's saying is, don't do that. It's not a good idea. You don't want to take of this, but you can if you so choose. And this is exactly what we find in divine portion in the scripture. Let me say it to you like this. Here, here is, here, here's what God was saying to them. I will never curse you. He told Adam and Eve, I'll never curse you. But if you violate the divine portion by eating what I have prohibited you from eating, you have pushed yourself out of the place of blessing. Where was the place of blessing? It was the Garden of Eden. God made the garden, put them in the garden. And he said, you can have anything in that garden. And there was plenty, trust me, there was more than enough in that garden. And, and here's the lie of the enemy. Because if you go back and read the story, the serpent came in and found Eve and said, did God really say that you can't have of any tree? No, that's not what God said. God said, you can have of any except one. And the, the serpent twisted it around and said, well, you can't have it. And here's what happens with our money many times, is that we hear a message like this and we think, well, well, God's saying he wants 90% of my income. No, it's, it's a twisting. God, God is not wanting. Listen, God doesn't want what you don't have. He'll just ask for you what you'd like to keep. And so this divine portion is illustrated here in the scriptures. But there's a spiritual application I want you to see because there's divine portion all throughout our lives. There's divine portion when it comes to your time. Your time has a divine portion. You are only given so many days. Pastor Nate said it this morning. There was a 19-year-old that was buried yesterday, and there was a 74-year-old that was buried yesterday, all connected to this church. No one would have known that the 19-year-old had less days than 74. And, and here's what I'll tell you. When I met Dan Beatty in, in the funeral I did yesterday, when I met him, that was 13 years ago, met with a mutual friend, and they said, 
I need you to meet Dan because he just got a bad doctor's report. He's actually going to have to have some hospice care come in. We don't know how long he's going to live. That was 13 years ago. Now, he was just too funny, too gritty, and, and too witty to give up. But God had different plans. None of us know the number of our days. And so there is a divine portion of our time. What are you going to do with the time that you're allotted? When are you the most fresh that you can give something to God? Is it for 15 minutes in the morning? Or is it those 20 minutes at 2 a.m. when everybody else is asleep and you say, Oh, finally, I've got my precious time. It doesn't matter to me and it doesn't matter to God when you give him your best. But give God a divine portion of your best time every single day. I'm not asking you to read 32 Bible verses and, and pray for three and a half hours, but I'm saying that your time is limited, and there is a divine portion that God wants a piece of that time. Let me tell you what else has a divine portion in your life. Your energy has a divine portion. You only have so much energy in the tank. That's why when we get tired, we need to rest. And here's where the spiritual principle really uh, practically applies. And we Americans do a bad job at this, and that is taking a rest. That is slowing down and taking a break. Can I tell you that God wrote into the DNA of our existence a Sabbath rest every seven days? It is to replenish our energy. A Sabbath isn't a time that you just kick your feet up and take a nap. You can do that. But a Sabbath every seven days is a time in which you cease from producing. You just turn off the phone, you stay away from the email, you don't do what you normally do, and you do something or you allow freshness to come to your life. Maybe it's taking a bicycle ride. Maybe it's going out on the lake on the boat. Maybe it's, it's getting out in, into the outdoors. Maybe it is sitting with a good book and just resting and relaxing. This is a Sabbath, and your energy gets replenished when you give that divine portion to God, you give it, you offer it. And by giving something like that to God, guess who benefits? You benefit. So your energy has a divine portion. Your gifts also have a divine portion. And here's how that you can take that, that, that gifting and that talent that you have is that I don't care if it's through writing, communication, singing, um, uh, serving, working, architecture. God has given you gifts and talents. And he has a portion of that that he is asking as a return. Will you give it back to me? And the best way that we can give that divine portion back to God is through serving in our local body. It's serving in our local community. It is giving what we can do best back to the Lord. Not all of it because you have to make a living. You know, you, nobody expects you as a Christian uh, servant or a Christian business owner to give all your services away for free. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying you should be paid well for what you do, but there also is a divine portion where you serve with what you have been given. And you give of your time, of your talent, and of your treasure. Your singleness, get this, your singleness has a divine portion. If you're in the room this morning and you're single, there is a divine portion that you have been given by God. That divine portion is your sexual purity that you will someday offer to your spouse. That you will give to them the divine portion that God has blessed you with and given you. And you have, you have saved that and you have preserved that so that you can have that con commitment, that union as husband and wife. That oneness that God wants you to have. That is the divine portion. Your marriage has divine portion. 
We don't live in a land where polygamy is, is uh, legal, and so we don't have multiple spouses. We have one spouse, and that one spouse is God's divine portion for us in marriage. It is how everything in the marriage relationship is played out and expressed is through the divine portion of our spouse, one man and one wife in holy unity, living together in holy matrimony for life. This is what God has designed. And last but not least, your money has a divine portion. We call that the tithe. The tithe is the tenth, and by bringing the tithe or giving, offering it to God, if ten means the completeness, here's what happens when you bring this divine portion and you offer it to God, is you are saying, God, I'm trusting you with this, my divine portion of money, the 10% of all of my, my increase, and I'm bringing it as a representation of the whole thing. In the scriptures it says, if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. I, I kind of think about it in terms of grapes. If you take one grape off of the vine then the, and give that one to God, then the whole lump of it is holy. Now, please hear me. God does not prevent any of us from using money as we see fit. God does not prevent us back a truck up to the door and make sure that we cannot touch that divine portion. No, he doesn't do it. Just like he honored Adam and Eve enough in the garden that he gave them access and availability. If they wanted to violate divine portion, they could. All he's saying is it's not good if you, if you would do that. There's, there's consequences if you do that. And so by offering to God, it happened in, in Israel, people of Israel, for 40 years, they, their shoes didn't wear out, their clothes didn't wear out. Why? They were offering a divine portion to God. And so as we're, we're giving to God, what we're seeing is that there is a blessing that is commanded on this. But God is not going to prevent you from using it. What he's saying is if you violate divine portion, then there will be a, a pushing out of the blessings that you could have in your life. Now, when I talk about a topic like this, commonly people say, yeah, but pastor, that's old law. That's old covenant. Malachi 3, that's under the old covenant. And they're exactly right. It is. But tithing actually occurred 500 years before old law. And it actually goes beyond, in the New Testament, past it. And then someone cleverly will say, well, Jesus never talked about tithing. You're wrong. Jesus did talk about tithing. Matthew 23 and 23, Jesus is talking to religious elite. He's talking to people who really should have known the basic principles of Christian living. And he said to them, the Pharisees, the scribes, he said, you tithe of your mint and your cumin and your spices. In other words, he's saying, you do that. But you neglect the weightier matters of the law, like righteousness, grace, mercy, and truth. He said, the others you ought to have done and not left the others undone. So, as a New Testament believer, you don't have to tithe. But according to Jesus, you ought to. See how I got you there? You ought to. But not just that. Jesus was fully Torah observant. That means he, he observed the Old Testament law fully. He completed it. Actually, he fulfilled it. And so everything Jesus did he took at the basic level, and then he exponentially took it to a whole higher level. Get this. They used to say that if you would take someone to bed that's not your spouse, you have committed adultery. That was old law. You know what Jesus said? 
If you so much as look at a woman lustfully in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Wow, that's taking it up a lot. Jesus said this. If someone compels you to walk one mile with them, go ahead and walk two. The law says just one. If, if, if you need to walk with someone, walk a mile. But Jesus said if they want you to walk one, go two. Jesus said this. If someone wants to take your coat, you know what you do? Take off your scarf and give it to them too. So unless our righteousness exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, right? We should exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees then we have no part in the kingdom of God. Everything Jesus did started at this level and went on higher. So to the person who wants to argue with the pastor, which I know you don't, that tithing is Old Testament, tithing is old law, good, you're right. If you want to give more, then fine, give more. I don't have a problem with that. Normally that's not the argument though, is it? We thought about Brandon in our church years ago. Come to New Freedom Church, where our tithe is 8%. But the numbers don't match because 10 is 10 is 10, right? Tithe is 10. It is a divine portion that we're offering unto God. So no, you don't have to tithe, but you ought to give unto God the divine portion. This is where he tells us that we walk in a place of blessing. Now, hear my heart on this. New Freedom Church is fully funded and we don't have a bill that we're waiting to pay tomorrow for the offering to come in, okay? Can we give God a hand for that? Thank the Lord. The worst time to talk about money is when you really need it really bad. That's tough. But that's not by accident. That's by design. It's by design that we are fully funded right now because 10% of every dollar that comes into this church goes back out in the form of other ministries, not in-house ministries. We've done that since the inception almost 14 years ago, 10%. We felt like if we're going to encourage the people to tithe, then the church itself, there's no biblical mandate a church has to tithe, but we do that. In fact, last year, I think Pastor Seth told me it was like 14% or something that actually went out. So thank God for that. Thank God for that. Now, someone is sitting here saying, well, all right, preacher, you told me I don't have to tithe. You told me the church is fully funded, so I guess the church don't need my money. Phew, good. And by the numbers, technically you'd be right. If you're thinking, well, other people are already given, technically you'd be right. But let me tell you this. Technically, other people are reading their Bible during the week in this church. Other people are praying in this church. Other people are witnessing to the lost in this church. Other people are serving the Lord in this church. And if you take that notion and say, well, I don't have to read my Bible, I don't have to pray, I don't have to witness, other people are doing it, who are you hurting if you do that? You're hurting you. You're not hurting the church. You're hurting you. And here's what God says. If you will partner with him in your finances, if that first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. Everything else happens. I have never, ever in 14 years had a person come to me and they say, I've been tithing for five years. It don't work. I want my money back. That is a farce. I've never had a person tell me that. This is the only place in scripture where God says, try me. Put me to the test and see if I won't open up the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing. There is not room enough to contain. As they're coming, I want to I wanna share uh, one challenge with you this morning. I'm not asking anyone in this room this morning 
to make today your decision that you give 10% of what you made last week. You have an opportunity to give something because you have been given something. Everybody in this room was given a dime. And this is such a powerful story of how that God first gives to us. God so loved the world that he what? He gave. He gave. God is a great giver. And we have been given so much. God first gave to us. And so everything we have truly belongs to him. In the New Testament, it's not 10%. It's 100% because we give our all to him. Everything belongs to him. But I'm going to ask you to do this. I'm going to ask everybody in the room to make one of four decisions. The first is this. I want to ask you, if you've never given before, become a first-time giver today. Make today the time that you give for the first time. And it may just be 10 cents. It may be a dime that you give. I guarantee you, if you do, there will be a blessing. Now, we don't give to get, all right? God's not a genie in a bottle. You rub it, you put in money, you get 100 back. No, that's not the way it works. But I will tell you that you can't outgive God. And that when you give, there is a seed that has been sown, so something springs up. So if you've never given, I want to encourage you, become a first-time giver today. Maybe you've been a first-time giver. Maybe you, you occasionally give. Maybe you've put in a little bit here, a little bit there where there's a need. But the call is to start to become a regular giver today. Maybe you set an amount, you designate something that you're going to start to become a regular giver. You can do this through that app that we advertise. If you just download that app, it's so easy to give. A couple clicks, you can put in your bank card, you can put in your checking account. It will go out of your account every single week. And you get a message from us after your gift has been processed. And it will tell you a little update of, of how that we're using the finances, how that we're using the money. Uh, we have checks and balances in, in all of the finances. It's just important to do that. And the preacher don't know what you give. I don't know what anybody in this room gives. This is why I can give a message like this with complete sincerity. Because other than what Holly and I give, I don't know what anybody gives. I don't have access to that. I don't want access to that. That's between you and God. But maybe you're going to become a first-time giver. Maybe you're going to become a regular giver. You're going to set a dollar amount, and you're going to give it every single time. But maybe you've been doing that, and God is calling you today to become a proportional giver. We call this the tithe. Maybe it's, it's been that you've been giving what you can or what you want, but now you're going to take that step of faith and you're going to become a proportional giver, a tither. Someone who says the first 10 is going to go to God. See, the government, they got this principle long ago because they take the first percentage of their tax right off your check, don't they? They take it first. I determined I wasn't going to let the government get first what belonged to God. I'm going to give the first to God. But maybe you've been doing that for a while. Maybe you're in this place this morning and you say, you know what, Pastor, I agree with all you said. I've seen financial increase and abundance in my life. I've been a tither. Then I want to encourage you to do something, and that's to become an extravagant giver. Go above and beyond the 10%. Go higher than that. There's actually a pastor in California who wrote a best-selling book about 20 years ago. It's called The Purpose Driven Life. And he has gotten to the place in his life through the book sales, it sold millions of copies, where he actually practices a principle called reverse tithing. He gives 90% of his income away and keeps 10% and lives on it. Now that might blow our minds to wonder, but you know what I would pray? God, help me to become a reverse tither. Somehow, some way, God, let your bountiful blessing come to my life that I can get to the place to live on 10 and give away 90 because let me tell you this, at the end of your days, 
you're not going to be measured by how much money that you had in the bank, by how many gadgets you had in the barn, or by how many uh, accounts that you had at, at, at all of the savings investment firms. You're going to be measured by how great of a giver that you were. Had you sown into the lives of others? Had you given of your time, your talents, and your treasures to the kingdom of God and to others? When someone comes past to pay their final respects to you, are they going to look at you as a person who gave graciously and liberally to all around or a person who held on so tightly that they never had enough? The word of God tells us if we cast out our bread on many waters in not too many days, it will return to us. When you plant a seed, you should expect a harvest and God wants to do it. They're going to sing a song. I want you to prepare your heart to give. You can do that in the app. You can do it at any of the offering plates, uh, boxes in the, in the room uh, or the building. And there's also an envelope that is in your bulletin.